Welcome to Great Minds and our guest today, and this is just an incredible uh, pleasure. I'm such such a big fan of Stacks. Is Jeff Kolath? Jeff is the executive director of the Stacks Museum of American Soul Music. Uh, he spends most of his time these days in the great city of Memphis, uh, which is where the museum is held uh, on Mclemore, that iconic street in Memphis. Uh, hails from the great state of Wisconsin. And uh, we are thrilled to have you here, Jeff. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Jeff, I, I, I read a lot about you in a bunch of interviews, and I, I'd love to hear it from you, how uh, a young man from Wisconsin, from Wanakee, the only Wanakee in the world, as you like to say, in Wisconsin, ends up on the corner of College and Macklemore in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, it is kind of a story um you know it growing up music you know having a group of friends that we kind of all traced together our interests you know we were interested in baseball cards and basketball cards at the same time and then you know the early night early to mid 90s we all just started becoming incredibly passionate about music and listening and talking about it and you know everybody had their own little niches and my niche was I discovered the Allman Brothers band um, during high school and that the love of that band in, in finding, you know, bootleg recordings and starting to trade tapes, you know, my senior year of high school kind of propelled me along. And I became really interested in, in, in Dwayne Allman's studio work and, you know, researching him and learning about him and finding all this great music that he had made in Muscle Shoals sort of put me on this journey of collecting records and finding music that wasn't about who was on the front of the album cover, but who was on the back of the album cover, where it was recorded, who played on it, who produced it. And that kind of took me into really becoming a huge fan of Southern soul music. And obviously a lot of great Southern soul music was recorded in Muscle Shoals, but the capital of Southern soul music is Memphis, Tennessee, Stacks Records. And so, you know, really fell into you know, a love of Southern soul music. And, and when I went to graduate school at uh, Indiana university in Indianapolis needed a thesis topic and started thinking about what I could do. And literally, I think within a week, i opened up the, the local free weekly. And there was an ad in the back put in by a guy who was a photographer for the paper looking for rare 45s of Indianapolis soul bands. And I, thought that was interesting. <laughs> and so reached out to him not to say, Hey, I, I, I want to start collecting records with you or to, to take some of your sources, but I just want to learn about what, who these bands are and learn about Indianapolis soul music. And he made me some mixed CDs, the old, olden days, not mixed tapes, mixed CDs of, of, uh, of, of, of some of the records that he had. And I was working at the Indiana historical society at the time and just dove into the archives there and the microfilm of the Indianapolis Recorder, which was the black newspaper 
um, in the city. And what I found was a city and a newspaper that was incredibly supportive of local R&B and soul bands in Indianapolis, not just advertising them for the nightclubs and some of the things that were going on in their shows, but promoting their releases and talking about when they would go on tour and if their record had, you know, had reached the top 10 in Cincinnati or something like that. And so, but there was a finite number of records that were made and what we found, what I, what I sussed out and what was incredibly obvious was that these are records that yes, followed the trends of the time in R and B and soul music, but really what they were doing was addressing what was happening in the black community in Indianapolis at that time and reflecting what was reflecting the black community at that time, both in terms of the politics, the economy concerns, so on and so forth. So it was a great thesis topic and was able to do that and got to meet some musicians and do some research and, and um, got out of grad school and then went to work um, at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in, in, in Madison, Wisconsin for eight years and became very, you know, involved and very, worked very closely with the veterans community, especially Vietnam veterans and their families to help build our artifact collection and do exhibitions and do public programming but use finding a way to bring veterans together and working with community partners to do this. But really what we found was that music was this incredible bridge because Madison being a hotbed of the anti-war movement during the 1960s and those, those divisions when we were, we were working there were still evident. And then working in the veterans community, which tended to be a little more conservative, except in Madison, where there's a you know huge vets for peace uh, contingent and Vietnam veterans against the war and so on. And getting these groups of people together in the same room and not, I wouldn't say for, certainly not for the first time, but finding some common ground and music and talking about this music and talking about these songs was a way to start a conversation that might lead to bigger conversations. And so, you know, working with these different groups and sitting with in some of these different veterans and sitting with them and having these conversations. And, you know, I, I, I knew my limitations when it came to, uh, a, understanding military history. <laughs> I, I learned, I learned a lot from, I had great mentors and that, 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 that taught me how to deal, work with the material culture and, and, and so on. But I couldn't, you know, I, I could ask the basic questions about military service, but my, my angle always was when I sat down, it's like, what's one song that you remember from your military service? And because that was where I, I where personally, I felt comfortable, <laughs> And so if you, cause if you tell me your favorite song is, you know, Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, we can talk about Jimi Hendrix. You know, if, if you saw James Brown play in South Vietnam in 1968, we can talk about that. Um, and then as I learned and I became more, you know, knowledgeable about, um, you know, just again, military history and, and so on, I was able to hold my own in, in a variety of different ways, but music was really the way, and it was a great way to, start a conversation on a, on a, maybe a little lighter note, um, to build some trust to show that, yeah, I mean, I was in my late twenties when I was doing this too, which was, you know, hard to believe it was that long ago. Um, but it was a good way to, to do that. So seeing the power of music 
there and starting conversations and always finding a way to bring it into the programming that we were doing, that it was just a natural, that kind of, you know, between that, my background in museums, my, my graduate work and being a music nerd that I ended up at Stacks. And I guess you had written a, a letter uh, or an email to the Soulsville Foundation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I sent my thesis and uh, and a letter to the founding CEO, uh, Ms. Deanie Parker, who um, Ms. Parker was a st- former Stax artist. She recorded two singles in, uh, on the Volt label in 1963. Um, she won a talent show when she was at Hamilton High School. And first prize was a recording session at Stax Records. And then at the age of 19, she became the director of publicity at Stax with really no formal training. She learned on the job, but she is a work stayed at Stax until 1975 until it closed, had a long career in the nonprofit community in Memphis and in other cities. And then when 1999 came back and helped start Soulsville Foundation with some uh, local philanthropists and, and, and ran the organization until 2007. So when I finished, I was when I finished my graduate work, you know, I was looking for work. I was like, I'm going to send my thesis to this place and maybe they'll they'll find it interesting. And so I sent it. I sent it to her and never heard back. And then about I've been at Stacks eight years. So I guess it was about five, four or five years ago, we were going through a drawer in one of the desks in, in, in another office. And there was a big folder and it was just listed scholarship. And I was like, I wonder what this is. So I pulled out the first one and it was a paper written by a woman in Memphis, uh, a journalist and a, a music writer that I knew. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I'll read what Andrea has written. And the second thing in there is my thesis <laughs> with the letter, the letter clipped to the front in a post-it note. Interesting file, <laughs> DP. <laughs> there you go. There so, you go. Uh, so it survived. She didn't throw it away. She didn't throw it away. That's Amazing. the key part, right? <laughs> and, and, and there you were, and here you are today. So let's talk about Stacks because I think it, it, it's hardly lost in history, but much like Chess Records and and some of the other real icons of American music, doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, and and I'd love to talk about uh, really get into the detail of Stax and start with talking about Jim Stewart and Estelle. The Stax name, as I recall, came from the first two letters of Jim Stewart's last name, the ST and Estelle Axton, the first two letters of her last name. But was that his sister? Yes, yes, her brother right. and sister. And, and uh, Stax is uh, absolutely seminal in not just American music, but in music all over the world. So much of the music we listen to today traces its roots to Stax. And the number of artists and icons that have recorded there or been influenced by uh, what took place at Stax in Memphis is beyond description, starting with artists like Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and uh, so many others. But I'd love to sort of hear the Stax story from you. I know you teach courses on some of the artists who performed there and were such a seminal part of it, the, the greatest house band that's ever been anywhere, Booker T and the MGs and so much more. But I'd love to, Jeff, sort of hear the Stax story from you because you can tell it a hell of a lot better than I can. <laughs> well, I think it's, um, you know, Stax is a really a story about, it's about community. Um, you know, it's a, it's a story that, I think really 
could have only happened in Memphis in a lot of ways. Um, but it takes, it's a story about community. It's about story about people. It's a story about very, I could have described them in so many ways, but really how the best way to describe, you know, Mr. Stewart and Ms. Axton is open-minded and, and, and willing to provide the tools and the opportunity for people to succeed. And I think, you know, obviously it was a business. It was, you know, I think we, you know, we, it, it is the music business first and second and last, you know, and I think they, they didn't, Mr. Stewart, when he started in 1957, he started in his wife's uncle's garage on the North side of Memphis, making country records on what was then satellite records. And, you know, he was taken up by what was happening in Memphis and happening in the music industry at the time. There was opportunity there. It did not cost much to make a record. He borrowed some space. He borrowed his barber's tape recorder, which you can see at the museum. And he made five, five records, four okay ones and one really awesome one, <laughs> Bop and High School Baby by Don Willis. And so, but he had the passion and he saw a way forward, but to get to that point, he needed some help. And that's where his sister Estelle comes in 1959, takes out a second mortgage on her house, buys him a $1,200 Ampex tape recorder, and they open up a new studio in Brunswick, Tennessee, about 30 miles from where the corner of college and Macklemore where Stacks ended up. And that's where they work with the Veltones, which are the first black artists that they work with, which are brought to Jim by Chips Moman, who discovered him in West Memphis. And Chips, of course, is another incredibly important person in the history of American music, running American studios in Memphis and working with everybody from Elvis and Dusty Springfield to King Curtis and Neil Diamond. The thread that ties, you know, all of these different bits and pieces together and ties these different people that Mr. Mr. Stewart and Ms. Axon worked with is that they saw an opportunity again i just keep coming back to to to, to help people succeed and 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 give them and give the and give them a chance that other places might not and that's what makes this story so unique is that it was for both black and white and so it was for young black teenagers in the Soulsville neighborhood in south memphis who saw these people come in start up a, start up a recording studio in an old movie theater and they were welcomed in the front door. They weren't turned away. They weren't told to leave. The door was open. It sound, It's one of the, I say it all the time, it sounds like one of the greatest cliches ever. The front door was always open at Stax Records, but it was. <laughs> and so, and part of that was there was a record store in the front, which Ms. Axton ran, which was really the first point of contact for so many people that she got to understand what was important and what was or what was happening in the music industry at that time and what people were interested in listening to she kept track of what customers bought on little index cards and so she learned to grow learn to know their tastes and then learn to understand what was popular at the time so if she if a bunch of kids came in and bought 10 copies of a record she would take that record and pass it back to her brother in the back in the control room and in the studio and say i just made sold 10 copies of these can you make something like this the other side of that is Mr. Stewart might have a recording session with the MGs or some permutation of those and have a vocalist, you know, might be Carla Thomas, might be Rufus, might be somebody else. And they get a, a, a test pressing or an acetate of a recording and then she'll play it up in the store when there's people in the store and see how they respond. And so you have, you know, production and consumption under the same roof informing one another. So you have that happening. And then you have this 
this front door being open and her being willing to work with young people to get them to the point that they could record hiring young people if they didn't have any musical ability whatsoever, but they were just looking for a job, working willingness to work in the record shop or as the company expanded, working in other parts of the company. And then of course, what's happening in the back is you have a mix of, again, black and white working together. You've got young people who are playing together, learning together. And then you throw in a couple older guys like Al Jackson Jr., Gene Bolegs Miller, um, Louis Steinberg at that time, who was a little older before Duck came into this, before Duck came into the session or came into the scene, who are experienced Beale Street musicians who know how to be professional, who know how to play, showing these young guys the right way to do it. And then of course you just have pure, raw, amazing, talented people who have come up through the incredible high school band programs in the city of Memphis and through the churches in Memphis, the black churches and the black high schools. And you've got savants like Booker T. Jones, who plays multiple instruments at the age of 16. You have David Porter, who works across the street in the grocery store, who lives in the neighborhood, who becomes one of the greatest songwriters of all time. James Alexander is born in the clinic across the street and lives in the neighborhood and becomes a member the member of the Barquets and comes in. So you have all these people around all coming together and you get them all based on age, gender, race, all have these differences and you get them all to pull in the same direction. <laughs> it's a remarkable thing to get anybody to do that, but to get all of these people to do that. Um, it's just a testament to Mr. Stewart's vision, Ms. Ms. Axton's vision. Um, I think a lot, she doesn't get nearly enough credit for her role in all of this. She's a, a obviously she passed away in 2003, um, a remarkable woman in so many ways. Um, she's always, you know, she was, she loved on everybody. She looked out for people when members of the mad lads and some others, um, got drafted and went to Vietnam. She sent them care packages, you know, she looked out for people, but I think her ear is not, is not credited enough for helping create that early stack sound. Um, cause she heard it, you know, and, 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 and she knew. And so I think that's one of the things that you have all of these parts and pieces coming together, but it just, it just takes two people willing to take a risk. And you had that in Mr. Stewart and Ms. Axton. Great stuff, Jeff. Let's go back to your thesis as a student back in Indiana. And you said something that at any given moment in time, music is a very accurate reflection of culture at that mm -hmm. time and of experience in the case you referenced in Indianapolis, the experience of black people and that Indianapolis soul era. In so many ways, what uh, I'll use how you call them, Mr. Stewart and Miss Axton, bringing black and white together. Booker T and the MGs being just one of so many examples, a band with four members, two of whom were black, two of whom were white. They were way ahead of their time uh, in breaking barriers. We saw it happen years later uh, in the UK around the time of the two-tone movement and bands like the Specials and the English Beat is sort of the aftermath of Thatcherism in a very difficult time economically in the UK. 
But music historically has been way ahead of the game. And Stax is right at the top of that list. I think one of the 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 things that Stax did and really what changed was I don't they what they what they felt that the, what they were doing they didn't feel was revolutionary at that time. It just felt like it was what they should be doing. And I think that that there's a there's some several reasons for that. I think again with years decades of hindsight i think most of the 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 players involved in the story certainly realize that um but you know mr stewart likes to say you know they started off making music for for themselves <laughs> they started off making music for their neighbors started off making music for the city of memphis and it caught fire and it caught on and it grew way larger than anything they ever expected they 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 could have done and so i think what what happened was once that happened stacks grew and then the spotlight sort of went on and then they realized well this is this is unprecedented this is something that is that is certainly unique and it certainly was unique at that time in southern studios um and it grew to be less unique as as as, as time went by i think the at the core of it really was a sense of keeping the business at the forefront early on or kind of throughout. Um, it is the music business after his music business after all. And so again, when they're all pulling in the same direction, there's benefit for that or, you know, for, I think what we start to see by 1966 67 and then certainly after the death of Dr. King in 1968 is that that is when the impact of their music the impact of their words the impact of the story really starts to resonate and take hold with with those involved um there wasn't open discussion of social justice or civil rights or or really any type of um empowerment or anything in in most and nearly all of the music until about 1966 or so um and really you don't start to see it until soul man really in 1967 which if, if there's what the lyrics are written and then how it was certainly interpreted and used after that point by by people involved in the civil rights movement and African-Americans sort of, you know, writ large, um, that it does become this song of empowerment. But that's not the way it really, really originally was intended. And so following the death of Dr. King, you start to see the artists and the company understanding their role within the larger community. And that starts in Memphis and then it goes beyond. Um, Stax never forgot as large as it got, you know, it never left Memphis. It stayed in Memphis until the very end and it stayed connected to that, to that city. And that's one of the strongest things that I think we have going for us as an institution and an organization and what our city has the strong is that that this, it is ours. <laughs> it is our story and it has massive global impact, just like Elvis and, and, and Sun and, and, and the other and High and all the other great music that's come out of Memphis does too. But I think it's because it's so rooted in community and so rooted in, you know, South Memphis in Soulsville um, that it just has this, it's, it's, 
its impact, I think is it, it's just, it's, it's, it resonates, it just resonates in a, in a way that sometimes it's hard to put into words because we're, because it's still, it's because it reinforces and it inspires the work we do today um, at our museum and with our whole organization. And, and can we talk about the museum? Because it's such a extraordinary place. My son and I were lucky enough to go there several years ago. Uh, we did a whole Memphis swing on Beale street and Graceland. And the big highlight was and remains visiting stacks. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, so the museum, we just celebrated our 20th year, um, May 2nd, 2023 was our anniversary. So we're finally winding down our 18 month celebration of the year of the, our 20th year. Um, and you know, really the, the museum were, you know, we're located on the historic corner of college and Macklemore, 926 East Macklemore. So same address as the studio. It's not the original building. Uh, the building was torn down in 1989. So Stacks forced into bankruptcy and closes in 1975. The building sat vacant and in, in falling into disrepair throughout the back half of the 70s and throughout much of the 80s. Was sold to a, a church down the street for ten dollars. Who was going? That was going to turn it into a community center type place and knock the building down. Was never able to raise the money, and so it just sat as a vacant lot for you know ten years until. Ms. Parker and some local philanthropists um, came together with a plan to not just build a museum, but also create the Stacks Music Academy and after school music program for grades six through 12. And that's spun off into another part, which is that opened first in the year 2000. And then um, Soulsville Charter School, which is our public charter school, also grades six, six through 12, six, over 650 students on a daily basis that opened in 2005 and then the museum. And so the museum, you know, is, is, in many ways, it's the power of place. We don't have the original building, which as somebody that manages the building is glad because it's it's hard enough to manage a building that's 20 years old, but having to manage a building that used to be a movie theater and a bar and a bunch of other things <laughs> turned into a recording studio and, and gone through various permutations of, of interior design throughout the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, being able to start from scratch. Um, but we just, over this last year, we've, we've uh, redone about 75 to 80% of our exhibitions and uh, new paint, new carpet, redid the store, redid our theater, redid uh, the lobby area, changed out a lot of artifacts and brought some new things out, which we're super excited about too. So, um, you know, I think for us, it's, we've added some interpretive heft to the story and have gotten into more of kind of the, you know, the, the, the critical pivot point of 1968 and not just in terms of the, um, uh, the changes in, in, in Memphis brought about and, and really the world at large brought about by the assassination of Dr. King, but also the changes in Stack's business too, and losing its distribution deal with Atlantic and going forward mostly as an independent and, 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 um, forging a new identity going from the falling records to the finger snap and signing new artists and break in breaking new ground. And again, eventually kind of moving away from that traditional Southern soul sound of the MGs, the Memphis horns and an artist in front and, and the company growing at, at such a rapid pace, but acting again, under the guidance of Al Bell acting as what a major label would do expanding sounds and expanding marketplace. And so anyway, so the museum, you know, I think 
the the focal point for for most folks is is Isaac Hayes's 1972 Cadillac Eldorado um custom paint custom peacock blue 24 karat gold plated assess accessories you know being a northerner seeing seeing thick white shag in the on the floorboards of a car gives you pause because oh, man you, that's going to get real dirty and slushy in the winter time um but uh it's a beautiful car and you know it's a car that Isaac after he, after you win an Oscar and renegotiate your recording contract, that's the car that you get to drive around. And one of the cool things about the car is um, the number of people that I've met that come into the museum that I've met personally, but have come into the museum and remember that car being driven around in Memphis um, is really cool. And it's so again, it's like even that there's a strong sense of like community and memory around it. Um, one of the new pieces that we added um, during the anniversary was uh, the pink sport jacket and shorts that Rufus Thomas wore at the 1972 Watt Sex Festival in Los Angeles um, that had he had given to our friend Bruno Tillander over in uh, <laughs> over in Sweden and Bruno is in the music tourism business and met Rufus and gave it there's you know a photo of Rufus giving the coat to Bruno in Rufus's front yard in I think 1986 and. Bruno um, had been bringing tour groups over from Sweden for 20, you know, the entire time the museum's been open and coming to Memphis before that and hadn't come because of the pandemic and brought his first group back in late 2022, early 2023. I can't remember the exact date, but he, he said he was coming back and he couldn't wait to come back. And I said, we had borrowed the suit before for display. Um, but asked him, is it, it, I think it's, it's time, Bruno, it's time for the suit to come to Memphis full time. So worked, worked, worked out something and it's ours now. And so it's, it's exciting to have that on display. And, um, you know, we've uncovered obviously new story, new stories come out all the time and, you know, we've lost so many of our artists and, and, and not just those on the front of the albums, but the one on the ones on the back too, and close friends and, um, lost our great friend Floyd Newman this year, uh, the saxophone player whose baritone is on display in Studio A um, and some others as well. But, you know, I think we've been able to capture a lot of stories. We've been able to learn some more things. Again, it's just it's finding it goes it goes back to, you know, working when I was in my 20s and finding common ground. And, you know, one of the stories that came out was. Um, was talking with Eddie Floyd and Mr. Floyd just sort of in passing mentioned that he was, he used to drag race. And that was something that, you know, he just kind of mentioned it in passing and conversation. It's like, wait, wait, let's go back. And so it turns out that he, like, a you know, a lot of the musicians um, at Stacks, as they became more successful, you, you, you buy cars. You know, you buy a Cadillac, you buy a Lincoln, you buy a Tornado, whatever it might be. And so his passion was muscle cars. And so how he got into that was there was a garage down the street from Stacks, And late at, at late at night, the guys that ran the garage would test their 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 muscle cars that they had take that they would take to the drag strip out in Lakeland on, on the east side of town. And so they would come flying by the studio and he saw them flying by the studio 
and met those guys. And they talked him into going up to the Dodge dealership on Union Avenue and buying a 1968 Dodge RT with a 440 cubic inch engine and hired a guy to drive it and called it Soul Explosion and painted Soul Explosion on the side. This beautiful graphic with says Soul Explosion with dynamite in the middle. It's amazing. And then ran that car around Memphis, or at Lakeland and, and around and got hooked up with these other guys. And Memphis was a huge drag, drag racing city, which I did, again, things you learn. And um, got hooked up with some guys who had um, factory Mopar, factory support. And he ended up buying a 68 Barracuda and with a 426 Hemi in it. And if you know anything about car, that's a serious car. <laughs> and so he... Basically, they towed the RT around the south, and then they were going to take the that the Barracuda out, and it wrecked the engine or did something to the car right off the bat, and he lost. And just kind of the the relationship kind of all fell apart, and he sold the Barracuda to this drag racing team. The RT still exists; it's still in Memphis. It's been restored back to factory condition, apparently. So, anyway, all this, and it was turning into. Ask Mister Floyd, do you have anything from your time doing this and he's like oh, i don't have anything and so that it's like okay well this is a project and so you know these projects and we all do it you know you just kind of stash these things away and then you think about them when you're watching law and order on a wednesday night you know and you're just like just start doing random searches and on the very and through the magic of facebook <laughs> found a photo of the 68 rt a black and white photo and then through the mat, kind of tracing things back and finding some other sources, found a color photo of the Barracuda. And so was able to, and he had said he did not have any photos of those cars. So was able to send those two photos to Eddie Floyd, screenshots, and took those photos. And then we bought, we bought a, a, a door off of a 68 Barracuda off of eBay. And then our designer, exhibit designer, who also happens to be an old school airbrush artist, uh, drove to a Mopar show in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and picked up the door, brought it back, had bodywork done on it, and then airbrushed Soul Explosion to match what was on Eddie Floyd's door, and then clear coated it, and then we put it on display, and then on our big formal event that we did at the end of April called Night Train, which we'll be doing again this year. Um, Eddie Floyd came and I was able to show him that door. <laughs> wow. And Fantastic. so it's not the it's not the real thing, but it uh you know, we've got a really cool panel up that talks about kind of the history behind it. But you know, he's such a quiet guy. <laughs> he was looking at it and I was like, I, do you like it? <laughs> you know, he did. He liked it. But it's but it's very um that's the type of thing that just take these wormholes that you can go down and like in music music history and especially memphis music and stacks is just is full of thousands of them and the the webs that all of these musicians created through the various things that they worked on and things that they played on and you know it's it's especially in memphis because the music community is so in, incredibly interconnected and ha it still is and it has been for for decades that there was a ton of overlap between, you know, who played where and who played on what and, and being able to pick up on some of those things. And, and the ones that stayed in the city did session work, played gigs, 
played live gigs and, you know, there's, there's the work that we do, but then there's the work of, you know, dozens of other music collectors and, and record collectors and all that are doing this, doing this too. And so, you know, social media is, you know, for, for all of its, all of its faults when it comes to learning about this is, is so incredible. And it's just, there's so many resources and thank you to everybody who puts the stuff up on their Instagram and Facebook page, because they find things that we, that, that we don't. Well, su such great stories, Jeff. And, and I know the museum is a recreation on the original site, but you know, when you go there, the only word that comes to mind is authenticity. And, and I think it comes from the love that's gone into the Stax Museum, uh, the recreation of Studio A, uh, and you've got an awful lot of the original, that original Hammond B3 that's still there, and, and so much else. And, and most uh, importantly, of course, the music and the artists. And, and I love that you teach courses on the music, and I, I'd love to touch on a, just a couple of them. And can we talk a little about some of the great women of Stax and some of the great unheralded pioneers uh, of soul as you teach it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, both Rufus and Carla Thomas, uh, but I'd love to talk about some of the great women of, of Stax. I mean, it's one of the huge parts of the story of Stax Records. And really, you know, the music industry is very male dominated, especially, you know, and and, and soul music, R&B music in general is is very male dominated, especially outside of the artists outside of the, the again the people on the front of the album covers and so Stax really turns that on its ear and really from again from day one with with ms axton's involvement as a co-owner and a partner in the label and not just putting money in but having a say in the creative direction of the company um running the satellite record shop hiring all those young people that worked in the store um hiring Deanie Parker to, to work for Stax as the director of publicity. It's a, rem a remarkable testament to an, or to a company that at its, at its really its foundational time in 1962, 1963, when the company is trying to make a, trying to make a mark in the music business, they hire a 19 year old African-American woman to be there to be in charge of the company's publicity. And if we if you knew Ms. Parker and if you and you knew her now, you'd be like, okay, that makes sense because she's brilliant. Um and still it, I mean, still today. Um and so, but giving again young people these tools, but it it and giving women jobs of importance at a company that was that weren't just secretarial jobs, that weren't just transcription jobs. Yes, there were women that certainly filled those jobs, but Josephine Bridges, who worked at Stax and became the head of We Produce um, Records, which was a, an offshoot. That's where the Tempries were on We Produce. The Great Lou Bond record is on We Produce. Um, and so there's, you know, giving women say in terms of the creative direction of the company. Betty Crutcher, um, an essential Ms. Betty, you know, passed away recently, you know, within the last year. And so having her, giving her an opportunity to become a staff songwriter, Ms. Parker was also a great songwriter, but Betty Crutcher working with Raymond Jackson and Homer Banks to form that trio of we three writing, um, 
hit songs for Johnny Taylor and, 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 and a bunch of other artists, but have giving a, her not just an opportunity to write, but bringing her into the fold and working for the company um, and empowering her in such a way um, to work with artists, to work, work creatively. And then later on having her own LP and singles that, that come out. Um, you know, one of the things that Stax did that is they, they, we, we talk a lot about Carla Thomas um, and really Stax's first star, um, a pop star was on American Bandstand and did the package tours and, and so on. And, um, you know, she was doing a lot of her work is very poppy, you know, it's very, it's very pop centric. And I mean, I think even her, she would describe herself more as a pop singer as a, than, than R&B in a lot of ways. Um, but after her, you have the incredible Wendy Renee, who is so unheralded and is just a knockout of a singer um, after Laughter and Barbecue. And you have Ruby Johnson, who uh, I'll run your herd away, Mabel John, um, all of these great singers that were given given an opportunity that were given singles, but not given the push <laughs> that I think in retrospect, they probably deserved um, from the company, the, the tenants of stacks that we carry forward, you know, as in our current role, both at the museum and Soulsville foundation at the music Academy and the school, this idea of, you know, opportunity and empowerment is that you see that sort of reflected in, especially in our music Academy, when you have these young men and women coming together and they're learning how to perform, they're learning how to write music, they're learning how to produce music. But it's such a strong message that the young people that can come in and they learn about, they learn about Stax history, it's Stax 101, they learn about Stax history and they learn about the music and the people behind it, that at nearly every turn, you can learn about somebody whose story reflects yours. You can find a role model, you know, it's not just a dude, (laughs) it's not, you know, there, there is somebody who has done something before and and, and that you can find inspiration from. And so I think that's one of the strongest um, parts of the stack story is that again, yes, it was black and white, but it was also strongly female and in important positions right from the very beginning. So, so such a, an important story. And I'm so glad we got to talk about Miss Axton quite a bit uh, uh, along our conversation here, Jeff. Can we talk a little bit about what, by a very wide margin, has to be the greatest house band that we've ever seen? And that's Booker T and the MGs. Yeah, I mean, they're, Booker T and the MGs is something that I think it's the, there's a lot of ways to describe it. I guess I'll describe it as the gift that keeps on giving just because, because um, the catalog, their catalog, their, their personal catalog is, you know, there's just the amount of, you know, a lot of house bands at that time, if they were given the opportunity to record under their own name, a lot of times it was instrumental songs of, tracks that the label had put out or they were cover songs of popular you know smooth smooth versions of 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 pop songs or something like that instrumental records were obviously incredible incredibly popular throughout the 1960s you know i think stacks was 
understood that there was a market for the MGs and the music that was coming out. Um, but they took it in such a way that it, again, it authentically reflected Stax as a whole, the music of Memphis as a whole, but the music of these four individuals that were, that they were interested in making too. And it wasn't just sort of like a, here, go into the studio and record this instrumental version of an Elvis song, because I think we can probably slide it in behind there and it might, you know, register. They're writing really progressive songs of their own and breaking new ground. You know, every time that they're recording on, under their own name. So they could record under their own name, do a three hour session in the afternoon, go eat some, go eat some dinner, come back. And then, then they'll cut it. Then, then we'll cut a Ruby Johnson, you know, session after that. And then we'll go back to creating that, that traditional sound. But, you know, by the mid 1960s, especially, you know, listen to the hip hugger record and then what comes after on the, um, when the switch over to the yellow label, um, soul limbo and the burger tea set, and then obviously uptight and melting pot is like, you hear four musicians who have grown so much together, but also grown individually in their talents, their interests have changed or grown too. So by the time you do get to the end, you get to melting pot, you get this, you know, almost nine minute soul jazz piece of brilliance where everybody that's on that record gets to stretch out and, and, and show what they're capable of as musicians. And so just the ability for them to to be that versatile, um, to play together, to exchange those ideas musically. I think it helps when you've got a genius like Booker T. Jones who can play a bunch of different things and you have Al Jackson Jr. Um, you know, we can we can argue over the, who the greatest drummer of all time is, but he's got to be in the conversation. Um, and I think it's a lot of the early a lot of their success and a lot of the early success of stacks really falls on his shoulders because of the professionalism that he brings to it but also his if you just listen to what he's playing it's just a con it's just it's just constant it's just there it's so simple and so brilliant and it gives everybody else space to do what they they need to do and steve cropper you know is just I joke with my friends all the time about you really learn how good of a, I'm not a musician, but this is, so this is, but this is something that I am always really interested in is when you hear somebody that you think is a great music, great guitar player, listening to them play rhythm guitar and hearing what they do when somebody else is doing their thing. And so one of not Bob Weir, I think is one of the greatest rhythm guitar players of all time this listening to him play behind what Jerry's doing, the guy, Dickie Betts and Dwayne Allman, same thing, like playing behind each other when the other one steps forward and how it adds layers and adds, it adds context and it adds texture to what they're doing, but it also can push, it pushes the other player. You listen to what Steve's doing when he's not out in front and he's behind Booker and what he's playing and it's, oh my God, where does he come up with this stuff? Right. And it's just, it's a layer of, that influence of music that I think, you know, stat, talking about the roots of soul music and where it all comes from, jazz, obviously gospel, the black gospel tradition, blues, R&B, jazz, and then, but then there's country music too. 
And so much of what Steve plays is inspired by that. And then as kind of the core and then where it goes from there. So they all push each other in really interesting ways. And then it it starts to manifest itself, you know, on their soul, on their recordings under their own names. But then when they're playing behind other people, it's just that that's, that's why they're so, why they were so in demand as players after they broke up because everybody knew that they were the best at what they did and their ability to be like, I'm going to call that guy because he can play this 12 different ways, whatever we need him to do. So that's, it's just, it's a, the thing that I love about them is that they was, was what I just talked about, but then also, or what, and what stacks realized they needed to do was to build the bench behind them which is what the bar original barquets were intended for. But when you start to see the other session players that come in and what they learned from the MGs and learning that is sort of the foundational work and then where they took it, I think is, is also really exciting too. So it's just dozens of players that came through that studio, but it's, it, it, it starts with those, you know, big four. Yeah. And Duck Dunn, not to forget him. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a you you need the bass player, <laughs> and and he's one of the best ever. And I think again, just because he he like Steve, like all of them, I think just understood understood what they were trying to accomplish and understood you know the the, the goal. And I think it's the the base is such a critical base is such a critical part of the stacks on that bottom end is so prominent, and so his work is always, is always there. You know, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, stacks is a, is a, is a low, is a bottom end, funky, funky, gritty sound. And, uh, the bass is certainly important. Absolutely. You know, one of the, one of the great joys I've ever had is it's a great jazz club in London called Ronnie Scott's mm-hmm. and Booker T Jones every once in a while tours and plays there. He'll be there next September of 24. And we saw him a few years ago. He did a run Christmas week into New Year's. And I went one of the nights and I was by myself and I just was able to just sit right behind him and watch his hands on the Hammond B3 for the full set. And Mm -hmm. it was so memorable. And the stories that he tells and, you know, as, as is widely known, you know, he was a prodigy in his teens. Mm-hmm. You know, still going to school while he was, you know, coming to Stacks to record and, and to work and produce. Um, just a joy to get to talk about people like that. I mean, he's, he is, yes, when he was in high school, he was playing piano, organ, tuba, and saxophone. And then eventually he picks up guitar. His work as a songwriter is incredible. He produced Bill Withers' first record. And he produced Star, but Stardust by Willie Nelson, one of the biggest selling country albums of all time. Um, and so he his he's been in he so he played at our um, the kickoff for our twentieth anniversary in September of last year, and he played with three of our Stax Music Academy alumni who are identical triplets: the Franklin triplets, Sam, Jamal, and and Chris who are a rhythm section unto themselves. Jamal plays guitar, Sam's pl- Sam plays drums, and Chris plays bass. And Sam is a 
is our uh, rhythm section and in, in, in leader and instructor at the Stacks Music Academy. And Chris leads our uh, satellite band, which is our junior academy. And Jamal's a touring musician um, playing mostly with gospel artists. And so they played four songs with, with Mr. Jones. And you watching it from afar, it one of the most rewarding experiences I've had is, I mean, I've seen, I've seen, Booker, you know, Booker T play with his band and his son and, and other folks before too, but seeing him play with our three alumni and ex- having experiencing, watching them all experience it together and the joy that was shared on the stage. But there's this incredible photo that we, we that one of our, I forget who took it, somebody uh, um, of, of the day. And it's taken from over the shoulder of, through our, the control room in Studio A, actually, or the control room behind Studio A over his shoulder. And it you just see the crowd and then the 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 the, the three Franklins. And they're all locked in on him. And even though they hadn't played, they did a short rehearsal the day before and a brief sound check. Um, the music, the nonverbal communication is was was just a sight to behold and watching them sort of push him too in a way that, and vice versa was such a cool experience again it's the it's it's the full circle moment right the guy who was there at the very beginning to these young people who are inspired who are part of our fold because of this incredible music and this incredible place in the story and and, it, and its relevance to today and so that 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 was one of those moments where I think we all, when we saw it, even you you obviously when you work at the Soulsville Foundation and work at the corner of college in Macklemore, you see some really awesome things. And we've been seeing some awesome, doing some awesome things as an organization for the, over the last twenty plus years. And we've all gotten to experience some incredible things. Our students have played all over the world, you know, and 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 done some great things and and can, will continue to do so. And the museum has seen guests from all over the world, but there are moments I think when it's cl- collective, like you guys see that, like, are you, re- you seeing this? It's like, that was one of those moments. It just, it was, it was great. And so I think that it, um, it get, we talk about a lot, you know, green onions is 61 years old this year. Otis Redding died in 1967. Watt had its 50th anniversary last year. Stacks closes, Sacks closed 48 years ago next month. Right? Those are big numbers. Um, but it's moments like that that's like, all right, this music's not going anywhere. It's going to be around. It's going to take some work <laughs> to make sure that it continues to, to be around. Um, and the museum will certainly play a very significant role in that. But it uh, it's going to be around, and I think that's the when you've got incredibly talented people that are still going to play it, and there's a passion for it. But it's just the we talk to folks every day at the museum who are just have made a pilgrimage um, to come see us, and sometimes it's the fifth pilgrimage. Um, so it's exciting when you come back, and we can show you some new things. Uh, but I, I, I think I will most certainly be back. So, but it's very, it's that, I mean, I made my, made my pilgrimage in, you know, in 2006 and who would have thought that, you know, nine years later, I'd, I'd, I'd be working there. Amazing. Well, Jeff, I, I love talking to you. I love what you're doing to help foster that next generation of great musicians. 
uh, it's incredibly important work. It's got to be incredibly rewarding for a guy that grew up discovering great bands like the Almonds and and Muscle Shoals and Fame and all those great studios and that you ended up where you were. I guess once in a while, all the stars align and that seems to have been the case here with you and Stax. And I can't thank you enough for joining us here today on Great Minds. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. It's been an honor and and and, and it's been real fun. So thanks. And we will most certainly stay in touch. And I can't stop loving you. And I won't stop.